all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where we talk to entrepreneurs, founders, and operators, as well as investors about all things value creation and startups. Today, I am talking with Elizabeth Brooks, who is the managing partner of Better Angels, which is a high-performance syndicate of C-level investors providing guidance to early-stage companies. Uh, currently, she's also the CMO for BSE Global, which represents marketing efforts for really large brands. Uh, impressive brands, including the Brooklyn Nets, Barclays Center, among many others. And also before that, she was the board member and CMO of Lucid, which just had a billion dollar exit. Was it this year or was it last year? It was last year, um, right at the crux. December 27th, I think was the actual date. So just just in time for 2022 to round the corner. (laughs) Perfect timing. Perfect timing. So Elizabeth, so great to have you on the show. I would love to just do a little little background on, on yourself and just to kind of see where how you got to where you are. Sure. Um, really quick. I, um, I actually started my career in an unusual way for an investor. I started my career as a club DJ. It was the best <laughs> job I could get when I was in school. Uh, got to stay out all night, paid better than scooping at the local ice cream store. And I guess I was decent at mixing. So that's what I did. And from that job evolved a job at a record label doing um, A&R, which is technically stands for artists and repertoire. Um, some of us say that it stands for airplanes and restaurants, but it involves <laughs> A&R involves the um, finding of artists, um, the creation of records, uh, the sort of overall management of the record making process, and then the, the, you know, the marketing of that artist to the, to the person who's going to find, um, find their music, hopefully life changing. So it's a really interesting career from an investor standpoint and from a marketer standpoint. It's a really interesting place to start because you do you are constantly looking for the next exciting thing. You are, you know, out in experiencing different cultures. It's very lively. It's constantly changing. It's, it's never really the same. And at a certain point, um, when I, I started doing this, I, you know, I was basically a talent scout. I was, I was quite young. I was a teenager and I felt I, I love music. It's a passion of mine. I, I love it more than anything. And I still love all kinds of music. And in fact, I still DJ, but and, and I love the the impact that music has on culture and, you know, how how tribal it is and how passionately people identify with their favorite artists. And I, I found that insanely compelling. But there came a point where I actually felt that what was going to change people's relationship to entertainment and people's relationship to society and people's relationship to how they bought things and how they experienced things and how they lived their life. I felt that what was really going to change that was actually not the next band or the next singer, but technology and the advent of the internet. And so I literally sent a cold note to a tiny startup 
in San Mateo, California called Napster and asked them if they needed somebody who understood the music business to come work <laughs> there. <laughs> and I think, I think when I joined Napster, um, I was employee number six or, or seven. I think it was number six. So it was a very, it was an extraordinarily nascent company, um, under, a million users and we would grow to be to have 70 million users within the next six months uh, fastest growing um, internet application in history so that was a crazy ride and what it did for me i was their head of marketing um first and only and i it, it catapulted me into a career in high-tech marketing and so i moved on from there i worked at buy.com um you know, one of the e-commerce leaders later sold to Rakuten. I worked at a company called RealD, which creates the market-dominating 3D cinema technology that you'll see if you go to a theater and see a, a movie in 3D. So at that time, a revolutionary um, digital technology. I did digital marketing for EMI Music. I did consumer marketing for the ele for Electronic Arts, the gaming company. I was the head of content and marketing at Live Nation Entertainment, which is the world's largest uh, concert promoter and owner of music venues. And then I joined Lucid, which you, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. And Lucid is the leader and, and really the global market share holder of the programmatic marketplace for market research sample. And that's a super super dorky, um, a little bit like inside baseball kind of a business. Um, but the, the easy way to explain what Lucid does is that if you are a business doing market research, which almost every brand does, and you need a certain kind of person to answer a survey, let's say you're looking for 10,000 men between 18 and 34 who own dogs, it used to be a manual process. To, you, you would email and call the various sample providers to get these people to, to talk to you and give you the consumer insights that you needed. And what Lucid did, in much the same way that, that DoubleClick revolutionized the placement of digital advertising, Lucid created a programmatic marketplace so that you could just say, these are the people that I need insights from. And Lucid would go forth as a piece of software and find those people for you and do the matching. Uh, this, this, created a sea change in the world of market research and is what what led to um, Lucid's eventual sale to Sintab, which is a, a company in a, in a very similar corner of the business. Lucid was an extraordinary journey. I named the company. I did rebranding. I started a functioning marketing org. And then I joined a company that you know well, uh, Sopers Capital Associates as an executive in residence and functioned as chief marketing officer and chief strategy officer across a number of their portfolio companies, primarily in business to business um, software as a service. That was incredible. I got lured away um, at a certain point. I was moving back to from Los Angeles to New York City and the Brooklyn Nets NBA team we're looking for a chief marketing officer. And there are some jobs that you just don't say no to. And that was one of them. So I ran marketing for the Nets and for Barclays Center, um, the 18,000 seat arena in Brooklyn that is the home for the Nets, as well as a, a plethora of associated brands um, for a couple of years. And when we sold Lucid, I and the pandemic hit and, you know, life was life was a bit crazy, I think, for all of us. I saw an opportunity to do early investment differently. I had been an active angel investor. 
you know, I'd worked with a number of young companies. I've worked at a number of young companies uh, and with some amazing VCs and amazing private equity people. And I saw an opportunity to, to work with extraordinary founders and extraordinary young companies in a really powerful and value-added and slightly non-traditional way. And that's when I launched Better Angels Ventures. Awesome. Awesome. And I want to go into Better Angels, but there's some things I definitely want to unpack here. One was like the correlation between entrepreneurship in the media side and the entrepreneurship journey on the the software side. Um, we, I had a guy on our podcast, he was a founder and he said it was very, very similar, you know, like a lot of the, the same feelings going out, trying out your product, iterating, trying to raise money. I mean, were you seeing the same kinds of things? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I say when people talk to me about, you know, B2B businesses versus B2C businesses, I always say, you know, the person on the other end is still a human being. So in a way, it's always B2C. And so taking out a media product and taking out a company, they're similar because you're going to be testing a market. You're going to be watching your audience's response. So, so yes, there, there is definitely a corollary there. I think that they are, they are more similar than they are different. Awesome. And you probably get this question all the time. What's it like work? What was it like working with Sean Parker? (laughs) (laughs) Sean is amazing. Sean, Sean's quite extraordinary. You know, both Sean, Sean Parker and Sean Fanning uh, were co-founders of Napster. And I actually worked a lot more closely with Sean Fanning, but they are, they're both quite different. Uh, They're both brilliant. Um, They've both gone on, obviously, to do extraordinary things in the world of entrepreneurship. Yeah, they're, I mean, we were all kids, so it's a very, it was a very different time. It was a very different time. I have, I have fond memories of Sean Parker and myself riding around in Sean Fanning's Trans Am, uh, trying to fit ourselves both into the back seat. <laughs> That's awesome. I don't. I don't know that a lot of people, because people, people who, who think about Napster, you know, they know it maybe from the Social Network or the film Social Network, or you know, late stage media coverage or shows like Silicon Valley and and a very televised interpretation of what Silicon Valley was like in like 1999, 2000, 2001, when we were all you know 18, 20, 21, and starry eyed, and it. It was a lot less glamorous. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was just as much fun as it's portrayed, but in a very different way. Nobody was calling for apple teenies or, you know, snorting coke off of somebody's belly or it was not that. We were working incredibly hard, riding a rocket ship, trying to figure out where it would go while we were flying it, literally. Um, and it was, it wasn't glamorous. The first Napster office was two completely disconnected rooms on the second floor of a bank building in downtown San Mateo, California. And the reason they were disconnected was simply because there was no real estate available and we couldn't afford offices that had rooms connected to each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you would walk, you know, you would walk down the hall and kind of make a turn to get to the server room and in between one room and the other, there were, you know, 15 other startups also, you know, as much on a mission as we were. So it was a, it was a very exciting time, um, a very heady time, 
maybe one out of you know a thousand companies that launched at that time survived but it was it was different i think than the than the media portrayal that has evolved over the last 20 years i remember using the product i loved it <laughs> back in high school oh, it was just incredible. Being, yeah just being able to have any song you wanted and sometimes you'd click on a song and it wasn't the song you wanted but you know it was somebody else who uploaded it and called it something else but um it was a super super cool product and it completely disrupted the music industry People had never had access to music like that. And, and, you know, streaming services being as advanced as they are today, I think it would be hard for somebody who's grown up with Spotify and, and so forth and Apple music to, and YouTube music to understand that in 1999, before the advent of Napster, if you wanted to discover new music, you had, you were going to find it through maybe the very limited playlist on your local top 40 radio station, which is more of a top 20 radio station. You might get lucky and have a great independent record store in your town. But if you didn't, you were limited to the very small selection of, again, you know, big hits that were, stat that were stocked at the mall record store uh, in your local town. There were a few music magazines and they were great and they worked very hard, but it was still a very controlled kind of limited drip of musics that people were exposed to. And having this, the, the smorgasbord of the world's music laid out at your feet the way that they were as soon as you connected to Napster. And, you know, we had people connecting to Napster on dial-ups, right? Like mm -hmm. you can imagine that, that sound that I think we, we've all forgotten and want to forget, that whining sound. <laughs> but the minute that you connected pretty much anything that you wanted to listen to or had wanted to listen to was available to you. And that sense of access, which is fundamental to the internet and which we take completely for granted now, that Correct. was a revolution. It was absolutely revolutionary at the time. And that's why everybody fell in love with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that was definitely the crux of, of immediacy and I want it now and people getting it now. It was absolutely exactly and, and the digital consumer and, and you know, the fact that at that time, maybe businesses, well, certainly businesses did not understand that the digital consumer wants it, wants it now and wants it in the way that they want to access it. So the, the relationship between business and consumers was changing very, very rapidly from, we will give you this in the way that we think we want to give you this to, no, no, I'm going to experience and access this conveniently in the way that I want to as a customer. And now, you know, especially, you know, direct to consumer businesses are completely customer driven, but that was not the case at the time. So the whole digital revolution, it's almost shocking that it was, I mean, it was like, it was 20 years ago, but it, it's not that long and it has changed things so much. It has changed life on this planet so much. So you started working with Sopris while still being involved with Lucid, if I remember correctly. Yes, Sopris was um, the existing, you know, they, they, they were the first institutional non-BC investor into Lucid. So yeah, we as you know, an interim CMO at Lucid and as an investor, because I invested quite a bit of my own capital into Lucid, um, I worked really closely with Sobras. 
Sure. And so what was that like being jumping into the portfolio of, um, of a family office like that and working with companies, you know, some, you know, some in different stages, right? You know, early stage, later stage, um, working with founders, working with hired guns. Tell us a little bit about that experience. It was amazing. And, and it was quite, um, you know, intoxicating from a, a, a business standpoint, a, a creativity standpoint, because I was working across, I think, to start with six portfolio companies. And they were in different stages and they were in different industries, which is one of the things that I like about investment. You're never bored. You know, you're in one business one moment, like we'd be working in real estate, real estate CRM, and then we'd be in legal software. And then we'd be in something that was dealing more with housing. And so it was a never dull, very, very early stage companies. And that, for, from my perspective, offered this the opportunity to really not reinvent, but to invent um, a way of doing business that was efficient, capital efficient, time efficient, personnel efficient, things like none of the companies had a Salesforce instance stood up. So we were able to stand up a Salesforce dashboard across all of Sopris's portfolio companies, which then gives the partners the ability to see how each company is performing from a sales standpoint and allows the individual portfolio companies to have the benefits of, you know, a, a robust CRM and to start really managing their sales in a professional manner. Uh, we stood up a very robust content marketing initiative with everything from, you know, copywriters to a landing page strategy to, you know, really like well-crafted specific messaging for each company. And we were able to, to again, make that capital efficient because it was spread out across a bunch of portfolio companies. So I think this is, this is the kind of value that a, a great, a great family office, a great PE firm, a great venture firm, or even a great group of angels can offer to their companies is this kind of learning and experience and strategy and just, you know, shared, like, let's, let's take what we've all learned, the, the good things and the bad things, right, through the, the school of hard knocks that is, is doing these jobs for a while. Let's take that and see if we can make life better for our portfolio companies. Yeah, I mean, I think that from a, um, a business domain perspective, marketing is so difficult in early stage companies. Uh, you have so many different levers to pull and so many different personas to make marketing successful. You have the strategist, you have the execution person, you have the copy person, you have the performance driven marketing person. And, you know, to get everybody under the same roof, functioning in an early stage company that's limited on budget uh, is uh, super difficult. And, you know, software is reliant very heavily on marketing and people buy software with their eyes. So how do you think about that working with early stage companies that might not have the benefit of a shared resource um, like like Sopris did? It is, it is massively challenging. And I think, you know, one of the one of the very first lessons of marketing in an early stage company is that you are going to have to pick your battles. You're going to have to choose where you lean in with your resources and where you're going to wait until you have the resources to do that piece. You know, early stage companies are unlikely to do huge, splashy brand activations. Sometimes they do, but I would rarely advise it as a first strategy. 
crafting the messaging, um, the positioning and figuring out where your customer is and going and getting them. That's, you know, jobs one, two and three, right? Not necessarily in that order, but it, it requires a lot of practicality and it requires making what can be difficult choices. Yeah. And then for somebody that doesn't really, for who doesn't have a marketing background, how does a founder really try to establish themselves in, in a, in a market positioning? Because I think that's just so important in, in a slew where you're, you're combating either vertical solutions or horizontal solutions. Where do you fit, you know, and, and how do you, how do you know that your messaging really works? I mean, one of the interesting things is, and I, I say this to founders a lot, but generally founders have a very good and very strong sense of brand. They might not know it. Um, they might know it, but they might not know it. But because if you've founded a company, if you've identified a space in a market that you're going to take and you've crafted something to occupy that space and you've thought about the market that you're going to address and who your customer is going to be, and you've then gone out and and gotten funding by meeting with investors and pitching your company over and over and saying, this is the crux of what we do. This is who we are at our core. And this is why we matter. Well, then you've identified your brand. You've just done the initial positioning and the most essential part of brand work, which is the why and the who. Why are you and who are you? And so I always, I, I like to talk to founders when I'm doing brand work with them. And, and usually the brand essence will come out in that conversation, even if, you know, it does, does not require decades of marketing experience to understand your brand because you created a company. You actually really know, you do, you do know what it is. Um, you know, you know a lot more than you think about what the company is how to go out and find that audience and how to effectively sell to them and how to move the market, right? How to address your competition, how to map that out. That gets more complex and that requires specific domain knowledge. But the beginning of, of finding your marketing path, I think that I think that early stage entrepreneurs know a lot more than I hear them tell me they do. Awesome. No, that, yeah, that's really good because they're, they're, there's obviously passion, right? For what they're doing. And exactly. if they if they have passion for what they're doing and the problems they're solving, it's there. You just have to get the words out. Absolutely, because no, you know, you don't go into you, you don't become a startup entrepreneur because it's a an easy, cushy path to take. You know, you don't do it for a, a comfortable, simple lifestyle. You don't do it to 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 punch in your hours and you know go home at the assigned time. It's a challenge. It's extraordinarily difficult. So you, you've chosen it for a reason and you have a passion and you have something driving you forward. And that is going to be the source of what your brand is about and what your offering is to your chosen market. Awesome. So Better Angels, when did that come about? Tell us what that is. So I had been doing angel investing on and off for, well, pretty much forever, you know, since I, since I first dipped my toe into, into Silicon Valley. Um, I had worked with a lot of VCs at companies um, where I was a, a C-level executive. I had worked with quite a few angels. Um, I 
had been fortunate enough to be successful with my investment into Lucid, uh, with my investment into RealD. So I, I had seen, I'd seen an IPO with RealD. And, and I just felt that there was a way to do a different kind of early stage investing. Some of this was because my background is so different to the average investor. I, I don't come um, from a finance background or a Wall Street background. I came up in startups, but I didn't come up on the revenue path specifically. I didn't come up on the CEO path. I came up on the marketing path. And I find like, you know, the question that you just asked me, companies feel very kind of lost in its sea in terms of marketing. And I have found over the years that I've been able to help the companies that I've invested in. And I thought, well, if I can be a value add in this way, I know other people who have other skill sets who can be a value add in different ways. And so a group of friends came together to form Better, Better Angels. And our mission is very much to be to be better angels. It's perfect. Look at that positioning. Yeah, that's incredible positioning right there. It was, you know, the, the company name did kind of write itself. But in, in all seriousness, you know, there are there are a number of, of traditional fund models and they're all incredibly valid from, you know, a traditional venture fund with general partners and then limited partners and you as the GP, you know, or, or a managing partner like I am, you go and you find the opportunities and you do a capital call and you know, uh, assign the investments there. There are rolling funds. Um, there are co-investment funds. And Better Angels is more like a co-investment model than it is like anything else. We don't syndicate out to, you know, the the public. We don't syndicate to people that we don't know per se, although we're always looking to make new friends and, and meet new people who are interested in investing alongside us. But what we do is we identify investment opportunities and then we look at the group of incredible, talented, experienced, ethical, helpful, good folks, you know, that we are, are so lucky to be surrounded with. And we say, you know, who would be a value add to this company? Who would get this, who would get this opportunity and who would be helpful in getting this new co to where it and its founders want it to be? And then we put that investment thesis and that investment community together and we make an investment. So it is syndication, but it's a different approach to syndication than most of what I see out there. Yeah, it's, it's more of a invite only exclusive, you know, tight knit type of syndication. Exclusive is a word I would hate to use because we do have a mission to change the face of investing and to change the face of who gets capital. Um, in this world. So, you know, we work very, very hard to identify underrepresented founders. Well, exclusive on the investor side, like on who can invest with you. Yeah, you, even on the investor side, I would say the only exclusivity is, you know, have, have we worked alongside you before or do we think that we would like to work alongside you? Because changing the face of the investor community to me is what's going to help us change where capital goes. So having more women in our network, having more people of color in our network, having more 
underrepresented identities of all kinds, having more older people um, in our network, all of these things are super important to us. So we want, we want to change the face of, of early stage and late stage for that matter, investment from both sides, from whom we invest in and who's investing alongside us. But yeah, of course we want to know you because you know, it's a, it's almost a matchmaking process to a certain extent, you know, who's, who, who's going to really get this company and who's going to lean in and be part of what is always a Herculean effort, getting a company off of the ground and getting a company from C to A to B to C and eventually to exit or, you know, to operating as a sustainable incredible business forever which is you know it is it, it that's an exit in itself do you ever feel um this way because i do um companies that you see an opportunity to help where you can add value do you feel more of a proclivity or a selection bias to pick those companies versus companies that might not need your help I think it's possible yeah yeah i mean we all we all have selection bias sure and we all want to feel valuable we all right. you know that's a it's a it's human we all want we all want to feel valuable so yes like if i if i think i'm going to make a difference am i a little bit more inclined yes although you know if i think that it's just if I just think you have a slam dunk killer idea and all I can do is stand on the sidelines, raise the sidelines and, and cheer you on, I'm certainly not going to say no to that one either. Yeah, I like those. Yeah. Those are great. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't care. If, if we can find some more of those, that would be that would be unbelievable. But no, I like, like the I mean, board I, invest- I like the board meetings where I like bring in lunch, where I just like release a form <laughs> as like a caterer. You know, that's how my value add. If the hardest question is, you know, do you, do you want the tuna salad or the, uh, <laughs> right. or the portobello mushroom? That, that's, if that's the hardest question that you face at a board meeting, you're in a really good spot. No, I mean, I do. Look, I invest all the time in companies where I personally may not be incredibly helpful today. I might be later, right? You, the company evolves. Uh, the company gets to the point where they would hire a vice president of marketing or a CMO or they're facing strategic questions or, you know, they're walking into a, an area of business that I have great familiarity with, but I will have somebody in my investment group, someone alongside me who is of great value now. And I definitely do those investments every day of the week i have an investment in an incredible well you're the company that we're co-invested in datum i don't know that my i have i have experience in transmuting a marketplace company from a primarily services model to a primarily software model so in that sense yes i think that i'm i can be helpful to where they are but um my investment group there is also full of people for whom software development is their 100%, 10,000%, 10,000,000% core competency. And they can be helpful now, like 12.30 p.m. Eastern time today. They can be helpful. <laughs> right, which is nice. Company. Yeah, and, and by bringing them into the orbit, then I've done 
part of my job as managing partner at Better Angels. Awesome. And so I'd love to kind of segue into, if it's okay with you, just marketing in general today, because you are actively playing the game. And, you know, I've just been listening and reading a lot about what's going on um, from, you know, a B2C, B2B perspective on just customer acquisition strategies and how difficult it is you know, as a founder to, especially one that might be undercapitalized, that may not be in Silicon Valley, to get mindshare um, specifically because, you know, ultimately you're competing with ads on Google, right? And, you know, you're competing with developers that, you know, can outfeature you at any, at any given time. So how do you think about on the first, we'll go to the B2B side and then we'll go on the B2C side, really like being able to, to get in the ring, Right. And be able to actually, you know, how do you to think about that when you're actually in a, in, a, in a market that is competitive? It is ever more crowded out there, um, specifically in B2B and specifically in B2B software. It is insanely noisy in just about every space in, in B2B software. That said, I'm I'm still a huge believer in. I'm a huge believer in content marketing. Because I think that if you create the content and the information that your target customer is looking for, I think you can bring them to you. So being a subject matter expert, basically, or your company being a subject matter expert in a particular area, I think that's extraordinarily important. I think that showing your value by, you know, and this is, I don't have a single company that doesn't start its sales cycle and its revenue uh, momentum without a number of pilots and a number of trials and a number of very early customers and very early champions. And then those champions can be kind of your best acquisition tool going forward, particularly in B2B, because if there's one thing that has never changed in business to business, it's that somebody who is looking for a solution is going to want to know if their competitors are what competitors, what their, what solution their competitors are using. So if I'm looking at your tool and I see that my biggest competitor who I see coming up on my tail most quickly is using you, of course, that's going to pique my curiosity, right? That's, I, I say often about people's websites that in business to business, first thing that somebody's going to be struck by is just look, feel brand impact because that's our first experience of any brand in any circumstance whatsoever. And what the, probably the second thing that somebody's going to go look, a potential customer is going to go look for is your client list, right? You know, who are you selling to? There's a reason why everybody has those logos front and center. And that says a lot. It is noisy, noisy, noisy out there. But if you can get some advanced guard customers and then demonstrate success for those advanced guard customers and then show that success to your next potential customers, that starts the train rolling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you on the noise. I'm specifically in my, in my search, you know, I was listening to actually Bill Gurley uh, at a conference this year. And he said that like the hardest thing about venture is just, you know, not competition between venture firms, but just 
his portfolio being competition, just about how much ad dollars are going in. And for me now, it's it's all vertical SaaS all the time, right? I, I just, you know, it has to be built by, yeah, built by four, right? That's not, you know, that, because at least you have some kind of repeatability on a sales and marketing motion. You'll have some repeatability, hopefully on product market fit, because you're not trying to reinvent, you know, the, the sales talk about, you know, implementing your, your, uh, your software. So, what about yeah, on the I B2C agree. The side? horizontal approach of being everything to everyone does not, it just doesn't work. Yeah. You have to, you have to save. yeah, you have, you have to save that for, you know, the big guys in Silicon Valley, right? Um, yeah. Or, you know, one day you might be the big guys in Silicon Valley and then you can, you know, spread the riches, but yes, focus is so important in early stage. So what about on the B2C side? The B2C side is much more Wild West. You know, I do still, again, as I said earlier in the podcast, I caution people to remember that in both cases, you're still selling to a human being. But the, the B2C side is really where brand begins to shine and where you are so challenged to show your value and your differentiation. And again, it is ever noisier out there even in b2c because of the domination of you know cheap social media advertising um, search right the ever increasing availability of information to your desired customer they're spoiled for choice it's a it's a tough road to show that you're different right and you can't afford a sales force with b2c right and you can't yeah, yeah and you can't charge as much so no, so you have to find, you know, what, what is your differentiator going to be, right? And we've seen that the companies that succeed in direct-to-consumer have come up with, like, usually they've found a problem that hasn't been well solved. So Warby Parker is a good example in the sense of, I think that they early on learned to speak to their customer in a way that the optical industry had never spoken to its customer before even though it's this intensely personal thing right what you put on your face and what helps you you know see more clearly um you know glasses are pretty pretty essential for people who wear them and yet it was a, a fairly generic dispassionate not so personal business and Warby Parker said, no, 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 you know, we'll, we'll like, you don't even have to necessarily leave the comfort of your home. And that really resonated with people and they liked the vibe of the brand and the way that the brand spoke to them. And I think that that, and look, that was early on in direct to consumer. And today that's not enough because every direct to consumer brand has this kind of friendly, we're built to serve you. We're going to make it super convenient for you approach. And now you have to rise above that yet again. So it, it, it is challenging. It is challenging, but you find the gap in the marketplace. Yeah. And I just think to your point, content, nothing but content is the really one of the main big moats you can actually have because yes, <laughs> I mean, you'll see, I mean, I just, I mean, there's just so many examples. I mean, Kim Kardashian is, is raising or is raising a, a private equity fund. You know, it's unbelievable. I mean, but she'll throw, uh, uh, you know, a direct to consumer, um, apparel brand and it's three and a half billion dollars. 
like a third of the country is on it follows her on Instagram. I mean, that stuff matters. The huge, huge broadcast range that she has, right? All she has to do, anything that she says is going to garner attention. And that gives you a platform to launch any number of things. And that has really, you know, I think influencer marketing is, is by now, it's an, it's an old discipline, but influencers in the sense of anybody who is influential, you know, that th those platforms remain one of the best ways to reach the audience that you want to reach. You just have to figure out who those influencers are. And it's why we went from macro influencers to micro influencers to what people are now calling nano influencers, right? Because you, I'm a nano influencer. Whatever's smaller than nano influencer, that's what I am. <laughs> you know, I should I should know my Greek well enough to be able to pull that one out of my hat, but but I don't have it today. Yeah, awesome, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for jumping on the show. Um, couple canned questions, if if I may. What is your favorite book? Ooh, now or forever? Doesn't matter. First thing that comes to mind. Um, I'm a really big fan of L'Atelier's The Anomaly that came out a couple of years ago in France and then I think came out last year in the United States. That's a fantastic, that's a fantastic book for now. Uh, book for the ages. I'm going to be horribly unoriginal and go with great expectations. Nice. What about marketing books that stand the test of time and aren't just flashes in the pan? Emotional Branding by my late mentor, Mark Gobey. That's a classic. Um, Ogilvy on Advertising, even an older classic. And yet um, those, those, the philosophies there still hold true. Uh, Pip Coburn's book on basically how to solve perceived pain of adoption versus perceived crisis of need that that's a marketing book that has stayed with me pretty much forever um those those, those are my favorites one of the things that i always say about marketing because I, I talk to a lot of marketers who become investors or they become ceos or they've you know gotten really lucky and retired to some beautiful spot and I, I speak to them enviously and they say, oh, you know, I can't really talk about marketing because I, have, I haven't been in it for so long. I don't really know how it works. And while the, the digital tools do change on almost a daily basis, it is crazy how that, how that does evolve and change. And you need to work very, very hard to be current. The basic principles, you know, of how to build a brand and how to speak to a customer and how to go out and find that customer and acquire that customer. And then very important, people forget this, retain that customer. <laughs> you don't need to reacquire them. Uh, there's the, and the basic tenets of, of brand marketing and of how to build a successful ad campaign, those things you know, they don't, they haven't changed in literal millennia. Um, you can look at, at how people used to build businesses in, you know, ancient societies, and some of those tenets still hold true today. So it, it doesn't, it doesn't actually, the tools change, the philosophy remains the same. The song remains the same. Yeah, the song remains the same. 
Everybody, thank you so much for tuning in to the Capital Stack. We are on every Tuesday. Uh, a new episode gets dropped on every platform, Apple, Spotify, YouTube. If you like it, please subscribe, like it, share with a friend, cancel me, do whatever. Uh, everyone a great day, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.